0: Hey, guys, and welcome to the Moms of Murder podcast, a true crime podcast featuring myself, Mandy, and my dear friend, Melissa.
1: Hi, Melissa. Hi, Mandy. How are you? Doing good. How are you? Really, really good. It's been a great week. Yeah. Yeah. Nothing in particular. It's just been a nice week. The weather's been great. Love it. It's Florida. Oh, the weather has been absolutely beautiful
0: the last few days here in Florida.
1: I saw that it snowed up north, so again, sorry, but if we have to have like... People snorting bath salts on the streets. You guys can deal with a little bit of snow.
0: Yeah, I know. Well, my mom is up north and she said, yeah, that it was snowing. They had like a huge snowstorm. So I do not envy that at all. I like no snow. The land of no snow. I like it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we don't have anything to say, um, really at the top In of the general. episode this week. <laughs> In general. So we're gonna get right into it. And we're both super, super excited about this week's episode. This is a story that I don't even know. Melissa has had told me about this story such a long time ago, wanted me to watch this documentary that was on it. So some of you might be familiar with it actually – also. So this story is really heartbreaking, but it does have some heartwarming conclusions. And today we're going to be discussing the Michael Morton story. Like I said, there was a really good documentary that was out on Netflix. Um, It's not there anymore, but you can still find it and stream it on other platforms. I watched it on Amazon. It was on there for Amazon Prime. It's a really, really good documentary. So it came out in 2013. So it's been it's been a few years now. I think this is one of the first documentaries ever that you told me to watch, actually, or you asked me if I had seen it. I remember you asking about it really early on. And I know you just love this story. So gosh,
1: yeah, it's one of those that like, I'm very obsessive about things. (laughs) And so whenever I find something I love, like everyone in my circle of friends, like knows about it. And so this is one when I see it, I'm like, hey, have you seen have you seen an unreal dream? Have you seen an unreal dream? So you watched it and I don't get a lot of I don't get a lot of participation in my obsessions <laughs> so yeah I always appreciate when somebody <laughs> watches it but it is incredible it's one of those stories that I'm not even kidding you as far as true crime goes this one like changed the way I thought about a lot of things really in like the criminal justice system and I don't know I just this is like one that's always in my heart which I know this is such a weird thing to say but I think about this story a lot and I think about the people in this story a lot Very strange, I know, but it's just one that not strange. I think it's great. Yeah. Yeah. It's, but it's like, I I like definitely have Google people in this story. Definitely look for their Facebook pages. I am also friends with Stephen Avery's girlfriend on my Facebook page. Like, I've done some weird things in my life. Googling everybody in this case is not that weird for me, but I did ask a friend request of somebody in this case. I don't know why. (laughs) And they did not (laughs) accept. So I should be bitter. Maybe I am bitter. Maybe that's this recent. You did this recently. No, no. Years and years ago. This was like literally like with tears in my eyes watching the documentary on Facebook, like looking for every person. (laughs) I just wanted to see update pictures. That's all I was looking for. And they were like, no, absolutely not. You're wacko. (laughs)
0: That's so funny. (laughs) So it is a really mind blowing and remarkable story out of Austin, Texas. And to set the scene, Melissa is going to give us the lowdown on Austin in this week's segment of We Googled the City.
1: How on earth have we never done anything in Austin? I was so surprised. I don't know. I know. Me too. Very, very surprised. So there is so much about Austin. So I was kind of excited because I thought, well, eventually, this sounds terrible, but eventually we'll get back to Austin, I'm sure. So I'll leave some of the other stuff for next time. So to start with, Austin is the capital of Texas with a population of over 950,000 and is the fastest growing large city in the US. I think since 2010, it's grown over 200,000 people, something crazy. But you hear about people moving to Austin to yeah. me, all the time. Right. So Austin's unofficial slogan is keep Austin weird. It was intended to promote small businesses and was inspired by comments made by Red Wasanich I'm probably saying that wrong. In 2000, while he was giving pledge money to a local radio station. So guys, let's get weird. So I talked to Lydia in our group, who's one of my favorite people and is super, super funny. And I was like, what do I need to know about Austin? Because she just knows everything about Austin she told me this story. The Austin Blind Salamander, it actually gets its name because it doesn't have image-forming eyes, and it's a result of adapting to life in its primary habitat. Here's its primary habitat, the dark underground waters of the Edwards Aquifer that feed Barton Springs. So literally the only place these blind salamander live is in these springs. Like in the whole world, there's these salamanders Hmm. that are blind that only live here, which to me is creepy and amazing. And- the quote Lydia gave me was, the entire city is held hostage by the blind salamander that lives in our natural spring pool, Barton Springs. We have to do whatever makes the salamander happy. <laughs> <laughs> I think she's the funniest, so I love it. <laughs> Speaking of freaky animals, Austin has the largest urban bat colony in North America. During the spring and summer, around one and a half million Mexican free-tailed bats actually migrate to Austin and they emerge from under the Congress Avenue bridge every single night. Both residents and tourists flock to watch the site. And I've heard about all these bats, but one and a half million? Oh my gosh.
0: You know, I've gone and seen the bat houses in Gainesville there at UF. And it is a sight to see at night at dusk when all the bats start leaving the bat house. And it is really crazy. I mean, there's just like hundreds of them pouring out of these bat houses and it really is crazy to see so I bet you that is cool I can totally get behind going to see some bats (laughs) so when
1: we were first married we lived in a condo and it had bats legit had bats like you'd see them at night well where our counters met or our cabinets met there was a hole leading up to the roof or to the attic or whatever in a condo I don't know what it is And a bat came through there and came into our condo. My husband saw it, didn't bother to get it out. So one day when I was there, it was in the room and I lost my mind and had to like help shoo it out and like screaming bloody murder the whole time. Nobody calls 911. Nobody is worried about this woman screaming for her life. But it was terrifying. So the idea of seeing one and a half million bats, not my thing, not interested at all. I had a one-on-one encounter and I'm still surprised I don't have rabies Mm. from it. Yeah. Well, I wouldn't want one in my house. But. No. At any Anytime we could come because we had no idea where it was coming from. So it would like go hide for a few days and then it would whisk into the room and you're like, like dive bombing into the house. I'm sweating just thinking about it. Okay. I'll keep going. <laughs> this one's for you, Mandy. If there is one food that describes Austin, it's breakfast tacos. Mm. Yeah. The flour tortillas are made with cheese, bacon, eggs, guacamole. I saw like steak i saw all kinds of stuff but they're specifically breakfast tacos and literally every food mandy loves on one taco so oh my gosh that sounds amazing (laughs) i know you're not like you don't like sweet things for breakfast which i always forget until you like go ew over me talking about (laughs) waffles or something i was like oh i found something for mandy this is great So last thing, Austin is home to tons of celebrities, but the one I'm focusing on is author William Sidney Porter. In his honor, the O. Henry Museum of Austin hosts a pun-off each year where participants compete using bad jokes. And now I have five quick jokes for you based on a true hero of Texas, Walker, Texas Ranger, Chuck Norris. Now, he's not from Austin, but just let me get through some Walker, Texas Ranger jokes. (laughs) Number five, Chuck Norris once bowled a 300 without a ball. He wasn't even in a bowling alley. Number four, (laughs) I love Chuck Norris jokes. (laughs) Chuck Norris can tie his shoes with his feet. Number three, the quickest way to a man's heart is with Chuck Norris's fist. (laughs) Number two, if you can see Chuck Norris, he can see you. If you can't see Chuck Norris, you may be only seconds away from death. And number one, one of my favorite Chuck Norris jokes of all time is, Chuck Norris once went skydiving but promised to never do it again. One Grand Canyon is enough. And that is all (laughs) I have this week. That was so wordy. I didn't even think it was going to be that wordy. I'm so sorry. Let's get to the episode, which is going to be really, really good. Ignore me. I'm probably going to edit half
0: this. Go ahead. No, I love it. It's funny. Okay. So our story today really begins on Michael Morton's 32nd birthday, which was April 12th, 1986. This was a day that Michael fondly remembered as being one of the absolute best days of his life. And it was because he really had so much to be thankful for on this particular birthday. His three-year-old son, Eric, had recently undergone heart surgery to correct a heart condition, and the little boy was finally thriving for really the first time in his life. Michael also had a beautiful and loving wife named Christine, or Chris, by his side, and the young family was living and enjoying every moment of life. At this time, there was just so much going on that was good in their life. The family lived in a new home that they had just bought a year or so earlier in a subdivision near Lake Travis. It was a rapidly growing area at the time, but there was still a lot of uncleared lots and wooded areas nearby. Most of the families that lived in the neighborhood were also young professionals with young children. The neighbors got to know each other and became really friendly with Christine, although many said that they didn't get to know Michael quite as good because he was just more quiet and reserved as a person. Christine was always lively and outgoing. She had grown up in a Catholic household near Houston and had been popular in endearing you know everybody just loved her all throughout her life michael had come from an upbringing that was a little bit more jagged and tough his dad had worked in the oil industry and had traveled across california before ending up in kilgore texas michael decided not to follow in his father's footsteps and pursue a career on the oil fields and he enrolled in stephen f austin state university which is where he and christine first met each other in a psychology class It was really a love at first sight situation. Christine knew right away that Michael was the one for her. And she really quickly committed herself to this brand new relationship. So both of them, Christine and Michael, had aspirations of finishing off their degrees at the University of Texas. They just wanted to transfer there, but they actually moved and ended up taking whatever employment they could get because they realized that many of their credits were not going to transfer to the new college. Michael settled into a position at a grocery store chain, and he ended up climbing his way up to a management position. And he and Chris would spend their time together just hanging out with friends. They would go... They had a boat that... Well, it wasn't just their boat. They had... A lot of their friends had gone and pooled money, and they had all gone in on this boat. So it was like they all could use it, you know, and take oh, it nice. out. So they would go and do that. Yeah, I don't have any friends that I think would buy a boat with me. I don't no. know.
1: Mm-mm. I just... Sorry. <laughs> I watch too much Judge Beauty. That's things that always go really bad when people do stuff like that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so true. So they would do those kind of things. They like to be out on the water, and they would just have really a normal life. The couple was very playful with each other, and they often would joke around in a way that made some of their friends uncomfortable. But really, that was just the dynamic that they had in their relationship, and they were very happy together, even though they would do some, kind of some darker jokes. I imagine the way – I mean, I know how I joke around with my husband. Some people don't don't understand it, you know, but I imagine it's like that. So, yeah, they were very in love. In 1981, Christine became pregnant and unfortunately suffered a late term miscarriage. And the couple, of course, was absolutely devastated over the loss of their first child. But they decided to conceive another child a little less than two years later. That pregnancy went off mostly without any complications. But when Eric was born, it became apparent that he had some serious health issues that were going to require some surgeries at a very young age. His first surgery was actually on the day that he was born, and it was to repair his esophagus. And shortly after, doctors determined that Eric also had a heart defect, and they said that he would not live to be an adult if he did not have open-heart surgery. But he wouldn't be able to have the surgery until he was three years old or had reached a weight of 30 pounds. So for the next three years, the new parents nervously, you know, watched this little boy as he struggled to breathe, especially in situations where he had overexerted himself. So when he was finally old enough to have his heart surgery, it was really such a relief to see him Do well with the surgery and he started thriving and he was very healthy. So, on this particular night, the night of Michael's birthday, the couple celebrated with their son at a restaurant before going home, putting the little one to bed. And then Michael was eager for some alone time with his wife, Christine. And he was actually hoping that they would be intimate with each other. But after a long day of celebrating and eating a big meal at a restaurant, Chris was exhausted and she fell asleep early. Michael was disappointed that he didn't get to spend the time with his wife that he wanted to, and he quickly jotted down this little note for Christine to read the next morning when he would have already been long gone off to work, but she would wake up and have this, you know, read this note about his feelings. So the next morning, Michael carried out his typical routine by waking up to his alarm. He took a shower and then he got dressed and left for his job as a supermarket manager. He was out the door by about 5.30 that morning and he arrived to work shortly after.
1: Everything about this morning was completely typical in the Morton household until a neighbor spotted three-year-old Eric wandering around alone outside. The neighbor assumed that the toddler had just snuck outside while Christine wasn't looking, but when she went inside to return the little boy, she made the gruesome discovery that Christine Morton had been bludgeoned to death in her bed. Police quickly swarmed to the scene, looking for any clues as to what may have happened to this young mother. There was little physical evidence to go on in this case. There were no signs of forced entry or robbery. Christine's purse was also missing, but other valuable items that were out in plain sight were actually left untouched. There was no weapon found and no witnesses aside from possibly this three-year-old little boy. Michael was at work at this time and totally oblivious to all that was going on at his house. He left the supermarket around 2 p.m. that afternoon and headed to the mall for about an hour before going to pick up Eric from the babysitter, as he did just any other day. When he arrived to pick up his son, he was confused and alarmed when he learned that Eric had never been dropped off that morning and that the sitter had not heard from Christine at all. I can't imagine what's going through your mind at this point. Like, everything's totally normal. It's 2 o'clock. This whole day has gone on, and this is whenever you realize something's, you know, not right. Right. So Michael quickly dials his home phone number, waited for several rings, and then a strange voice answered. It was the sheriff, and he told Michael that they needed to speak to him right away. Michael was, of course, panicked over what could be going on, and he quickly left the babysitters, arriving home about 10 minutes later to the sight of police cars and crime scene tape all around his house. And there's all the neighbors are standing on the driveway and trying to get a glimpse or overhear anything about what's happened inside the house. Michael showed almost no emotion as he was really just internalizing everything that was happening. Detectives ushered him to the kitchen table where they said they needed to ask him a few questions, all while crime scene technicians and other official personnel moved about his house, taking pictures of evidence and processing the scene. At one point, Michael dumbfoundedly said to the officers, "'She was murdered? Where was my son?' He was told that Eric was safe, and that they didn't have all the answers as to what had happened to Christine. And I know he also asked to see Christine. He was like, I didn't want to see what had happened to her. I just needed to know. I needed to know she was gone. I needed to see her. Like he couldn't really even explain it. He just needed to see his wife and they would not let him. Almost immediately, suspicion turned to Michael, and this is something we see really often in these cases, especially when somebody's found dead in their own home, that the spouse is obviously the first one suspected in this case, and he was really the only one that detectives really zeroed in on. The police had found the note that Michael left for Christine that morning and had really come up with their own conclusion that Michael had beat his wife to death in a fit of rage over his alleged pent-up sexual frustration. Michael was insistent on his innocence and fully cooperated with police and answered their questions honestly and without an attorney present at first. But he became irritated and uncomfortable with the line of questioning when it became obvious that the officers were seriously looking at him as a murder suspect. Hours later, Michael was allowed to go pick up his son, and he finally broke down with emotion. And there is so much more to this case, like we've barely even touched the surface, <laughs> and we will get into all that right after a quick word from this week's sponsors.
0: Life comes at you fast, but when you're looking for counseling, minutes can feel like hours and hours can feel like days. You want help quickly, but how will you fit it into your schedule? Our problems rarely arise during normal work hours, so why is counseling mainly available during normal business hours? BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you. Is there something that interferes with your happiness or maybe something that's preventing you from achieving your goals? BetterHelp has you covered and at
1: times that are convenient for you. BetterHelp offers licensed professional counselors who are specialized in issues such as depression, anxiety, relationships, trauma, grief, and more. You can connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. You can schedule secure video or phone sessions, plus chat and text with your therapist without ever having to leave the house.
0: BetterHelp is secure, convenient, and professional. If you ever find you want to change counselors, you can do so at any time with no additional charge. Financial aid is also available to those who qualify.
1: Best of all, it's truly an affordable option, and Moms and & Murder listeners get 10% off your first month. Simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor you'll love within 24 hours go to betterhelp.com moms and use discount code moms for 10% off your first month. Again, for 10% off your first month, go to betterhelp.com moms and use discount code moms. You guys know we've been talking about Instacart for a while now, and that's because we love them. Like, love them, love them. Like, give them our final rose, love them. And that's because they make our lives so much easier. My parents are actually coming to town this weekend, and while I'm running around cleaning out my fridge but not making it too clean so it doesn't look like I just did it for them, I can take a big sigh of relief knowing that I don't have to rush out to the grocery store. Instacart has me covered. I love that using Instacart means not losing my mind. Are the kids having one of those
0: days where you're wondering if they were swapped at birth for a pack of wolves but you still need to eat? You don't have to leave the house. Instacart is to the rescue. If you're not familiar with Instacart, here's what I did. I downloaded the Instacart app, picked out my grocery store from a list available to me in my area, and put in a quick order to be shopped for and delivered to my house by a friendly Instacart shopper. The Instacart shopper gathers your groceries with care by selecting excellent produce, and if there are any issues with the order, they will contact you when necessary. Instacart will deliver your groceries in as little as one hour or at a time you select. They bag them so your hot items stay hot and your cold items stay cold
1: try instacart and get ten dollars off your first order to get this limited time offer go to instacart.com or download the mobile app and enter our promo code moms10 at checkout that's ten dollars off your first order today at instacart.com or through the mobile app and don't forget to enter our code moms10 and now back to the episode
0: So the next day after this woman has been found dead in her home, a neighbor flagged down an officer that was nearby the scene and expressed concern about the murder and wondered whether the rest of the neighborhood was in any danger. They don't know if this, you know, what has happened here. They don't know if they have just a person on the loose that's breaking into homes and, and doing these things. So everybody is really on edge in the neighborhood. So the officer basically told them, not in so many words, that they believed Christine's husband had killed her and that the community should feel you know, not concerned about anything, don't feel unsafe in your homes or in your neighborhood. They believe that this was an isolated incident. The truth was the police really didn't have any reason at all to be so heavily focused on Michael as a suspect in this case. And most of the evidence actually pointed away from him being the killer. Shortly after the murder, investigators spoke with Christine's mother, who was taking care of the little boy, Eric, and learned that she had asked the boy a few questions about what, if anything, he had seen that morning. The little boy repeatedly told his grandmother that a monster had come into their home and hit his mom. And he described this person as having a beard and red hands, right? Yes. Yes, he did. He said something about red hands. When the little boy was asked whether or not his daddy was home, they, you know, they were like, well, where was daddy when all this was happening? And he said, no, daddy wasn't home. He said it was just him and mommy home.
1: Eric is telling his grandma all of this stuff, and the grandma actually tells the officer, hey, you guys are looking in the wrong direction. This little boy saw something, and he's telling us, like, his dad was not home. You know, look for this monster. He's telling us about this monster that's not his dad. You're looking in the wrong direction. There were fingerprints lifted from the
0: crime scene that didn't match anyone that lived in the household and that weren't identified, and there was a fresh footprint found in the backyard near the fence. The biggest overlooked clue in the investigation was actually discovered by Christine's own brother, who had taken a walk around a construction site where a new home was in the progress of being built in the neighborhood. He found a blue bandana on the ground that was stained with blood, and he immediately, you know, took this to the police and said, "I think this might be, you know, something. You don't know anything could be right. um, evidence in a case like this. You just don't know." And since it had blood on it, he wanted to have the police take it, you know, and analyze it. But They never did for some reason. They never analyzed the bandana. Um, So Michael, during all of this, while all of this is going on, Michael endured two polygraph tests, which he passed, and he subjected himself to even more police interviews without having a lawyer present or anything. He also allowed the police to search his car. In other words, he was being fully cooperative with this investigation into Christine's death. But after it really started sinking in that he needed an attorney, he went to this guy's office, Bill Allison, and asked if he would represent him. So Bill Allison believed the story that Michael was telling him believed that he was innocent and he agreed to take his case. But by that point, Michael was really in way too deep with this whole thing. The police already had pretty much pinned this murder on him. They were absolutely convinced that he had done it. And that was the whole direction they were going. Michael was arrested on charges of murder and placed in jail, which all of this came about mostly because they had gotten these results back from Christine's autopsy. And the medical examiner ruled that Christine had died at around one o'clock in the morning. And this was based on the findings of some tests that were done on some stomach contents. So if it were true that she died at that time, it would have been hours, of course, before Michael left for work, and therefore that would have placed him at the crime scene at the time of the murder. Despite there being no evidence, physical or otherwise, to actually tie Michael to the murder, he was put on trial in the winter of 1987. Michael and his defense team really were confident that he was not going to be found guilty of this murder. They believed that 12, you know, people on a jury would be able to see and understand that there was really insufficient evidence to prove his guilt. But an emotional trial commenced, and the prosecuting attorney really put on quite a show for the jury. He even got up there and was like crying whenever he was saying, you know, certain parts of the case. And a medical examiner actually got up on the stand and testified that the time of death could not be determined accurately by testing the stomach contents during an autopsy. And that was just like junk science. It was just fake science that they were working on when they came to this conclusion that she had died at that time. But nonetheless, Michael was found guilty and convicted of murder and given a life sentence in prison. He, of course, is stunned. His defense team is stunned. Hearing him talk about like how... You know, he felt when that verdict came in and he just said, you know, just take the floor right out from under him. Basically, he could not believe that he was found guilty of murdering his wife. And and he was, you know, just proclaiming his innocence, you know, to anybody who would listen. One of the really interesting and more troubling things for the defense was that during the trial, the prosecution never called the lead investigator on the case to testify, and the defense felt that they intentionally kept him off the stand so that he could not be cross-examined, and his police reports regarding the case could not be called into question. So
1: I have a question about that. Could the defense team have called him on the stand? I mean, I feel like that would be very unorthodox to do, to call the lead investigator onto the stand, but couldn't they have called him on there? They could have...
0: I don't... know. you can only call your own witnesses, and then they can be cross-examined if they're put on the stand, but... But that they could call him as a witness if they wanted that information, I feel like. I mean... I don't think the defense can. Okay. Because the, he would be a, a witness for the, the prosecution. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, exactly. So, I don't think... I don't know. I don't know how lawyer things work. And someone's <laughs> going to email us probably and tell us. Channing, but yeah. <laughs> please write us and tell us because
1: this is really interesting to me because that's what I thought. If if he they think that he's omitting stuff, could they have said we want him on there? But obviously, I think you're probably right because obviously, I feel like they would have called him up there.
0: Yeah. And I've heard of this in other cases too where like they – you know, even if they, you know, one side wants to question a witness and they just you can't like they don't have access to them to
1: do that. I don't know how it all works, really. I don't know anything. (laughs) That's basically my life motto. So that makes more sense. Okay, I'm sorry.
0: So regardless of what Michael or his defense team thought about the verdict, he was still now a convicted murderer and he was sent off to prison where he stuck out really like a sore thumb He learned what it was like to live in the noisy confines of a jail cell with the constant sounds of people yelling, crying, door slamming, keys rattling. You know, prison is a terrifying place. And they had another guy on the documentary that was on Netflix. They spoke to him and he was like a I loved him so much. The friend that Michael made in prison. Mm -hmm. He just looked like such a tough guy, you know, but he the way he would speak about jail and like how scary it is, you know, being in prison and you just really realize, you know. He said he felt bad for Michael because he also felt like he was innocent and hated to see him, you know, going through this whole right. ordeal. So as I said, Michael made a few friends in prison and he actually joked around and said that some of the best people he met in prison were in there for murder, which I thought was really, really interesting. But he said that the convicted murderers were not really your run-of-the-mill convict and that they usually just kept to themselves and didn't cause, like, a lot of problems. I just thought that was really interesting. I still don't want to go to jail or anything. <laughs> Me but. either.
1: But I <laughs> thought, like, a, the one thing I was thinking is a murderer, not, like, a predator kind of thing but like a murderer might be somebody that snaps you know you hear about those kind of things a lot maybe not that's what I kind of thought like if he was saying those are the kind of people he was in with I could see how that person like the rest of their life was totally normal and this day they kind of snapped and then how that could be like more you know what I mean like where they're not like this hardened criminal who's been going to jail over and over and over again and they did this obviously terrible thing but and now they're there like him you know Even though Michael wasn't at all a hardened criminal and he had no idea how to act in jail, the other inmates really respected him and believed him when he claimed his innocence. They interviewed several people, a lot that were still in prison, and they were all like, yeah, no, I believed him. People say they're innocent all the time. I believe this guy. So while he was serving his sentence, he was granted visitation with Eric every six months. Christine's sister, who had actually taken custody of Eric, would begrudgingly really bring him to the prison twice a year to see his father. He said that she just would sit there and kind of stare off like she was just angry while he talked to his son. The arrangement wasn't so bad while Eric was still very young and didn't really know what was going on, and Michael really relished these visits and loved getting to see his child, even though it was very bittersweet watching him grow up this way. Eric was living his life on the outside. He had a normal life and was coming to view his aunt and uncle as really his parents, he went to church, attended private school, had a lot of friends, sleepovers, he played sports, just all very normal kid things. Over time, he started to view Michael as a stranger and began to dread these visits to prison to see this man that he even told all of his life had murdered his mother. So you have to see this guy, and as time goes on and they don't have this contact, it's very easy to see how he, his opinion would change. Like, okay, but you murdered my mom. Like, that's all he's being told is this right. guy murdered your mom, but you have to see him every six months. And all... You know, Michael wants to do is see his son and tell him how much he loves him and Oh this whole i'm like literally tearing up thinking about this because I just can't imagine I, It is it's
0: really really heartbreaking. I know it really is hard to even fathom Yeah, what happened the stuff that happened in this case. It really is It's hard to like understand and get your head around it. Right. Really.
1: Absolutely So eric simply did not feel the same connection that michael felt towards him as I was saying and when he was 15 years old, he wrote michael this letter and said I I don't want to ever see you again. I like whenever I'm, I I just want to be done with this. And Michael basically said, Hey, you can do that, but I want you to come and say that to my face, not in like an aggressive way, but just like, I want you to tell me that. And so he told Michael that at that visit, that he did not plan on coming for any more visits. And I guess these visitations were about two hours. And Michael said, he said it at the very beginning and then Michael kind of walked away and that was it. So what should have been a two hour visit was like five minutes So Michael was crushed and obviously completely devastated over the total loss of Eric in his life, but he really soldiered on. In 1998, he began a prison college program and started working towards his bachelor's degree in psychology, which he did obtain. He then transferred to another prison unit to complete a master's program, and this prison that he ended up moving to, this area, seemed terrible. Like, the other one seemed terrible, but this was like working outside, there's no... AC obviously, it's really freaking hot, it's just like made a secured prison, not really, there's just no, there's just nothing nice about it really. So then when Eric turned 18, he decided that he wanted to know more about his mother's death and he began reading old newspaper articles on the case. His father was painted in a very dim light in these articles and Eric was really desperate to just move on and have a normal life at this point. So he wrote to Michael in prison and let him know that he was going to be legally changing his name and having his aunt and uncle adopt him. So he was changing his last name for Morton. Michael was overcome with grief once again when his son declared that he was going to officially and legally cut all ties with him. I can imagine that would be like the last thing you're holding on to. You don't have a relationship and you're hoping for one and your kid's saying, I don't even want your name. Like, I don't want any association with you. And that just literally broke my heart. So as a man of faith, Michael felt the only thing he could do was to pray to God and ask for help. And 10 days later, he got what he believed was an answer. And I think what he kind of said was he had like grown up in church and, you know, he knew about God, but that was never like the forefront of his life. So one night as he was preparing to go to sleep, he put on his headphones and turned the radio dial to a classical station. He said that he started to hear this harp music playing. And in that moment, he just felt like, Prison had gone away, and he just saw this light really, and that he felt like he was in the presence of God and he knew that everything was going to work out just the way it was supposed to. By this time, he had already been in prison for quite some time and had been fighting the legal system to appeal his conviction and had really gotten nowhere. Shortly after
0: the mysterious encounter with what Michael believed was the Holy Spirit, his attorney, who had been working on the case for free since the end of his trial over a decade earlier, he learned about the Innocence Project. So the Innocence Project is a nonprofit organization that opened their doors in 1992 and their mission is to exonerate the wrongfully convicted through DNA testing. And they also focus on reforming the justice system so that wrongful convictions can be prevented.
1: Can I just say that I could not believe that the that the Innocence Project only started in 1992? I, mean, I know. I mean, you just had to have had no hope before then. Honestly, they're just... There's no, like, whenever I heard they they heard about it, I was like, what do you mean they just heard about it, forgetting, you know, how far back this was? But wow, they do such important work. They really, really do.
0: They do. So this was probably one of their, this was one of their earlier cases that they would have taken on then. Michael's attorney felt that he would be a great candidate for the Innocence Project, and so he contacted them seeking their help. After they looked through the case files, the Innocence Project agreed to investigate this case, and from there... An attorney named John Raley was contacted to see if he could help at all. So the Innocence Project attorneys had actually seen this guy, John Raley. He tried a medical malpractice case, and he they knew that he was very knowledgeable. And he agreed to take the case pro bono, and he actually would end up becoming a very passionate advocate for Michael after a very lengthy battle with the courts to allow DNA testing of the evidence in this case, the judge finally agreed to have Christine's fingernail clippings, swabs, her nightgown, and her hair tested. Only her own DNA came back on all of those. So those were kind of a dead end. And then it's just kind of like a waiting game. Like all this time just passes in this case. When you think about how long things take oh my in gosh. this process, it's so mind blowing they waited 5 years they were fighting the lawyers were fighting for 5 straight years to have this blue bandana from the from the scene to, well that they found you know close to the scene they were trying to have this tested and in 2010 finally an appeals court granted the request and so the bandana along with a single strand of hair that was found with the bandana was shipped from Williamson County to a private lab in Dallas that had the most state of the art technology so they, this was a situation where they really only have one chance to get it right. And any DNA evidence that would be on this bandana is nearly 24 years old at this point. So so whenever some DNA has been sitting a long time, it might be degraded. The process for testing for like very small amounts of DNA that may be degraded, have degraded over time. It's a very delicate process. Takes a long time. So, But it was determined that the strand of hair belonged to Christine and that the blood on the bandana also belonged to Christine, which meant that the bandana was at the scene of the crime at the time that it happened. And what's even more is that there was a second DNA profile found on the bandana, and they could tell right away that it belonged to an unknown man. They could tell it was not a woman. It definitely belonged to a man. So Michael's DNA, of course, was tested against the DNA they found, and it was not a match. They did not find Michael's DNA anywhere on this bandana. So this was obviously huge news in Michael's case. And John Rayleigh even traveled to the prison to inform Michael in person about this huge, you know, break that they just had in the case. I love that
1: where John was like, I knew as soon as I walked in, he would know something was up because I had the biggest smile on my face. He's like, I could not contain it. They've fought so, so hard for this. And this is like the biggest piece of evidence you could possibly have that exonerates him.
0: Yeah. So everybody was, of course, over the moon, but they knew that they still had a lot more work ahead of them. The unknown DNA was compared against the 8 million plus DNA profiles stored in the CODIS database, which is the FBI's program, but all the states, you know, can contribute to it. It's the combined DNA index system. So if you want to submit some DNA to the big database, that's you're doing it to CODIS. So the best way to prove to the court that Michael did not commit the crime would be, of course, to match this unknown DNA to another person and get it, you know, get a name to put on it. So in a stroke of pure luck, they ran the profile through and they got a perfect match. The DNA came back as belonging to a man named Mark Allen Norwood. This was a man with a long criminal record across several states, including violent crimes such as aggravated assault and breaking and entering. And we're going to find out a little bit more about Mark Norwood after one last break for a word from this week's sponsor.
1: You guys know that Mandy and I are stay-at-home moms. That means our kids are with us 24-7, 365. They are always there. And sometimes I need a break. A few months ago, I decided to try Care.com to find a babysitter to come once a week for a few hours so that I could work on the show uninterrupted for four hours. I knew that Care.com is the world's largest digital marketplace for finding and managing family care, so that's exactly where I went.
0: Care.com helps make life simpler for families everywhere. And Care.com has everything from nannies to housekeepers, dog walkers to tutors, and even someone that can run those errands that you hate to do. You can hire full-time, part-time, or anytime. What I really love about Care.com is that you can have access to a variety of background check options that you can purchase so you can make the best hiring
1: decision for your family. You can find, book, and pay for care all in one place. When I decided to look for a babysitter, I logged into my premium account on Care.com and made a post explaining exactly what I was looking for. Within a few hours, I had several babysitters contact me within my zip code. Because I have a premium account, I was able to message those I was interested in and quickly scheduled an interview with a girl named Jessica. Jessica. And with my premium membership, I was able to run a background check on her and check references before she ever came to the house. And Jessica is really so wonderful. My kids love her, and she's now at our house every week giving me much-needed help. To save 30% off a
0: Care.com premium membership, visit care.com slash momsandmurder when you subscribe.
1: That's care.com slash momsandmurder to save 30% off your premium membership. Since Christmas, both of my kids have gone up a size in shoes. And my daughter has now grown up to my shoulder and is basically the same height as Mandy. Keeping my kids in clothes that fit them is incredibly difficult. That's why I love Poshmark. I can buy them gently used clothes or I'll even find clothes that are new with tags and lately I've been buying a size up since before the end of this ad, they will have already outgrown the clothes they are wearing today. You guys already know that with Poshmark, you can shop for millions of closets across America, which is great for us because I am desperate to keep my kids in clothes. I really love that with Poshmark, I can find a closet with a bunch of clothes in the same size and bundle my purchases all while paying shipping on just one item.
0: One of the really great things about Poshmark is when you're done with something, you can easily sell it on Poshmark. Upload photos, name your price, and you're halfway there. Once you have a sale, Poshmark sends you a prepaid shipping label in your email and you drop the package in the mail. Easy peasy. With
1: Poshmark, selling is easy for both the buyer and seller. As our kids grow literally every single day, keeping them in clothes that fit is a constant struggle. My daughter is a mini-me, but she's really not so mini now. She's gone up two full sizes this year. Poshmark is key in keeping her clothes in things that fit without breaking the bank.
0: Find deals for clothes, shoes, accessories for women, kids, and men for brands like Coach and Converse. Listeners of Moms & Murder get $5 off your first purchase. Just enter the invite code MURDER5 when you sign up. That's invite code MURDER5.
1: Now back to the episode. So now they've got this guy, Mark Allen Norwood, and we're trying to figure out who the heck this man is. So once the DNA on the bandana was matched to Mark Allen Norwood, the Innocence Project began looking into this man and where he was living at the time of Christine's murder. And they learned that he was living in Austin at the time and for several years after that. One attorney who was so stinking smart decided to do an internet search for unsolved cases in the Austin area that had similarities to Christine's case. And they found one that caught their attention. 17 months after Christine's murder, a woman named Deborah Baker had been bludgeoned to death in her home just a block away from where Norwood had been living at the time. The crime had all the same traits as Christine's murder had. They wondered whether Norwood was also guilty in that murder. When all of this information starting to come to light, District Attorney John Bradley, who had been digging in his heels for the last 25 years when it came to helping the Michael Morton case along, was ready to discuss the terms of his release. What? Uh... <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I mean, really, like, you get to talk about the terms of his release. Like, you've done enough. Thank you. So after over 24 years in prison, Michael was released from prison on October 4th, 2011. And they're, like, in the documentary, they show him sitting with his mom and his dad. And they're all just so thankful. And it's really kind of amazing to see that they're, I'm sure they're hurting and, you know, they've lost all this time, but they're just sitting there and just so thankful their son's coming home. So Michael recalled what it was like leaving prison and he said that the other inmates all showed up to cheer for him and give him this warm send-off. He said they are just like as he's walking away, people are just yelling and screaming for him and he's like some were yelling bad words, some were just cheering me on like but everyone was excited. Like where the the jailer that was bringing him out was like is there a riot or is everything okay? <laughs> um and he just like left everything really for for the people in his area, like the people in his prison cell, they could all have all of his possessions. And there's this photo of Michael Morton leaving the jail. And I actually already, I told Mandy whenever I saw this in this story, I was like, oh, I already took a screenshot of that. Like, I could not believe it. It's just the most heartwarming picture. It's like he walks outside and he faces, you know, towards the sun, which you can see the sun in prison. (laughs) But I think it's way different seeing it as a free man. And just the look on his face is like, just gives me chills. I know. I love that picture so much. It's probably
0: like my my favorite, like crime related, like image or something. You know, I love it. I love it.
1: So days later, Mark Norwood was arrested on charges of murder in the death of Christine and was also suspected in the murder of Deborah Baker. A later DNA test on a strand of hair found at that crime scene would also be a match to Norwood and confirm his involvement in her death as well. Wow. Yeah. So after 16 months in jail, Norwood was finally going to trial for Christine's murder, and Michael was a key witness for the prosecution. This I found really interesting and enraging. The jury in his trial was not allowed to hear that Michael had been convicted of this murder already and spent 25 years in prison because the attorneys worried that the jurors could be easily confused and develop an unfair bias. Or maybe we just tell the truth. I mean, I get there's reasons, but... Yeah, I thought... I just think like there's DNA evidence at this point. Like, can't we say, and also this dude over here that's having to testify, I would be interested in hearing his, you know, him testifying. How do you even tell this story without being like, no, I've just been sitting in jail and my attorneys and everything fought to even get this stuff tested. So right. Yeah. After an intense trial, the jury quickly returned a guilty verdict and the judge handed down a life sentence in prison. Michael and Christine's family both asked the judge to waive the death penalty in this case. And Michael actually said whenever he was being released from prison how thankful he was that he didn't have a capital case because he would have been on death row and— possibly executed before they ever were even able to test that bandana.
0: Yeah. So Michael's finally a free man. And the real monster behind this terrible murder was finally behind bars. But the story is not quite over yet. There is a lot of aftermath in the wake of being wrongfully convicted and in prison for 25 years, of course. Because of how the DA and the judge had handled Michael's case and failed to turn over this exculpatory evidence to the defense, including the police reports by the lead detective that were never turned over and investigated. These are files that contained important evidence and witness reports of seeing a green van parked near the Morton home on several occasions, as well as accounts of neighbors seeing a strange man lingering around near the woods in that area an innocent man lost everything. Michael Morton lost his wife. He lost his child. His entire family was literally torn apart over this.
1: And how does he even grieve? He's being, you know what I mean? Like his wife was killed. He was a victim in this too. And how, how did he grieve? He was fighting for his own life and his whole life was being torn apart. And he doesn't even have a chance to grieve the wife that was taken from him because, you know, he's in the middle of this whole thing. It's
0: so sad. So by this time, Michael's son, Eric, had changed his name and moved on with his life. He had gotten married. He had a baby of his own on the way. He, you know, as we said earlier in the episode, he really grew up just believing that his father had killed his mother. And he quite literally just wanted nothing to do with Michael and did not feel any connection to him at all, you know, as a family member or otherwise. He just didn't want to have him in his life. So the last thing that he wanted to do was to deal with this exoneration news and the idea of this major disruption of what had been a normal life for him, you know, for a long time. And I totally, my heart just went out to him. I just felt so bad. I felt terrible for Michael Morton in this case, when his son is like, you know, saying, I just don't really even want to deal with it. Like it doesn't even matter. I just, even though it's like, it could be a good thing and you could, you know, maybe heal from this whole lifetime of believing this and you could get a relationship with your father started. I feel like it would be just so it is a disruption, you know, even though sometimes even good disruptions are a disruption. And like he had all this other stuff going on in his life. I can I just felt it was just crazy to hear. Oh, him but talk. I
1: also wanted to shake him like I did understand it. And he's been through so much and everything. But I'm just you know, but I'm like attached to Michael Morton now. So I'm like, please just talk to your dad. Please <laughs> talk to your dad. I'm devastated. The first time I watched this, I was like, I'm going to throw something if this does not get resolved really quickly.
0: <laughs> well, Michael never gave up hope that he would one day be able to repair his relationship with his son, and they slowly started spending more time together. They would tell each other stories and really just taking it from the beginning, getting to know each other as you know new friends. For Eric's whole life, he had never been able to talk about his mom with Michael or to hear in Michael's words how in love his parents really were and what a great life that they had planned, you know, together, all three of them. Eric was able to watch home videos from his early childhood, and over time, he ended up growing to love Michael as a father and want, you know, want him to be part of his life. After Michael was released from prison, he moved in with his parents in Liberty City, Texas, and eventually rented his own home in a neighboring area. He began attending church where he had always attended with his family growing up. And he was, at one point, he was asked to speak to the congregation about his spiritual journey. He also offered to meet up with anyone, you know, have a coffee or something if they wanted to talk about his experience in prison. So that was when one member of the church, named Cynthia Chessman, reached out and offered friendship, which quickly grew into a romantic relationship. Cynthia was just really amazed that Michael had been through this absolutely horrifying experience in life and had still come out to be humble and just a very content person overall. About a year into their relationship, Michael proposed to her and the couple was married in front of 200 guests in March of 2013. So Michael has continued to grow his relationship with his son and now has three beautiful grandchildren that he gets to be around for. The district judge in this case, Ken Anderson, was given 10 days of jail time and had his law license revoked for his role in hiding evidence to ensure Michael's conviction And Michael now campaigns for legal reforms to prevent wrongful convictions. And in May of 2013, the Texas legislature passed the Michael Morton Act, which establishes an open file policy that forces prosecutors to share all of the evidence with the defense teams. I was just really shocked that was not already a law. Like, I thought that was in the Constitution, to be honest with you. (laughs)
1: Like, I really thought that was just a thing we all knew about. Yeah, Yeah, I'm amazed by that. And I was amazed watching Michael on the stand in Ken Anderson's trial where he tells the judge basically, I mean, this man, Ken Anderson ruined his life. With Michael being in jail and not the right guy, another person ends up getting murdered. Like, who knows what could have changed? You know, two two women could really yeah. be, a, or one woman well, could be alive and the yes. correct person could be in jail if the right guy had been you know if they even bothered to not zero in on Michael Morton like to not have tunnel vision and look at the evidence not just build a case over this letter which by the way guys look at this letter it's online you can read it it's just a little lengthy for us to have read in the episode and it is the most like husband writing a wife letter like that is not a letter you write somebody right before you murder them it's just like no exactly my feelings this was embarrassing for me. How would you feel if, you know, you were looking forward to this night with me and I fell asleep? That's really what the letter is. And it was like written in a loving way, I thought, really, you know, considering the circumstances and stuff. And how did you build an entire case on this? It It's maddening. But anyway, Michael, in this trial for Ken Anderson, he looks at the judge and he says, this man, Brent Green, has like ruined his entire life. And he says to him, you know, do what the right thing is, but like, please show mercy. Or I don't know if he used the word mercy. but something like that. Like be kind to him or something gentle. That's what he said. Gentle with him. And I just was like, Oh my gosh, Michael Morton, you were the nicest person in, in the entire world. And <laughs> we don't really deserve you. is. He really is. And that's
0: one thing I, I also love. I, I just love him as a Me person. And too. like, he is just the most adorable man. I just I love him to death. I think he's so great. I'm so happy that, you know, he was able to Find love again. Oh my gosh, me too. And and that he gets to see his grandbabies growing up. And like, I just, I'm so happy for him. His wife it, was definitely the one I tried to friend. <laughs> yeah,
1: <laughs> I couldn't say that earlier in the episode. But no, that was the one. She did not accept my friendship for good reason. I am yeah. not to be trusted. <laughs> So anyway, yeah, this story just does something to me, and and I hope you guys were encouraged by the story of forgiveness in this. Um, He also has a book, and it's called Getting Life, and I read that a couple years ago, and I don't have it anymore. I let somebody borrow it, and it's really, really, really incredible, and we'll have all that stuff in our show notes, and the the documentary is called Michael Morton. I think it's called An Unreal Dream, and I know right now it's on Amazon, at least in the U.S., but check it out. You'll, you will not be disappointed. So we hope you guys enjoyed the episode this week.
0: I know we did. I know Melissa has just over the moon that we got to talk about this on the podcast. So I'm happy.
1: It's (laughs) been like 82 episodes and I'm so glad we did it. I don't know how it ever, how we didn't manage to do it in the first three because I'm that passionate about it.
0: Yeah. So this is an amazing case. It's an amazing story, like you said. So I'm so glad that we got to talk about it on the show. Me too. So before we get out of here for the week, we're going to do our last thing before we go. If you are with us, familiar with us, you know that we do this every episode. It's just a little thing we do. So we're going to do that now. So Leah, who's in our Facebook group, I just love her to death. She's amazing. She wants to know what is our favorite go-to can't fall asleep activity. So maybe this will help me. You know, What do you do when you can't fall asleep and you really want to? Is there any tricks that you have?
1: I mean, mine is to either watch something really like I've seen a million times or listen to something I wouldn't normally listen to. So I'll listen to or I'll we always have the office on when we go to sleep. So that's like a big thing. And I love the office, but I can go to sleep to the office because I know everything that's happening. So I don't really have to pay attention. And then also I'll listen to old episodes of Comedy Bang Bang on a podcast, like if I'm laying down with my son or something, because I've heard it so many times. So like nothing surprising to me. So that's basically it. I'm not boring myself to sleep because I love both of those things so much, but I can go in and out of being asleep and not have to pay attention. So like I need noise that like I can't, I woke up this morning for like two hours and I had to listen to something because I was like, I just lay here I'm alone with my thoughts like a monster (laughs) my husband we were working in the yard this week and um I was like can I play music he's like you don't want it to just be quiet I'm like what is wrong with you like do you like being alone with your thoughts you know what goes on in my head it's terrible I need to drown all of this out like really bad (laughs) I don't like it
0: to be, like, dead silent either. I like to have – I have to have background noise. But I actually don't really have much of a hard time falling asleep. I don't know. I guess – I feel like the TV really does it to me though. Like if I, it, you know, we'll watch a movie late at night out in the living room and I will just fall asleep on the couch sometimes, like a, just like an old woman. Like I'll just pass out on the couch <laughs> and then like, you know, my husband will like wake me up and be like, okay, do you want to go lay down in the bed? And I'll be like, okay, yeah. So, but I fall asleep on the couch almost every night just watching TV. I just, my eyes just get heavy and I just go to sleep. But otherwise I don't really have a hard time. I don't have things I do to, to help me go to sleep. Yeah.
1: Hmm. Okay. Well, lucky you. <laughs> There's a lot going on in my head. It's very difficult sometimes. <laughs>
0: yeah. So next question. So this one comes from Shannon, who is in our Facebook group. She wants to know, what is our dream job? If we could skip the schooling for it, just go past all of that and just be this thing, what would you be?
1: There was a time when I was younger that I really wanted to be a pediatrician. And I... Was terrible at math, terrible at science, basically terrible at people. And so it ended up being a really bad idea, but for a while, I really wanted to do that. So I feel like I like the idea of helping people. And since that was kind of a passion I had whenever I was younger, that to me would be something I would probably want to do. I don't know. Honestly, I have had zero aspirations my whole life. This These <laughs> questions sometimes are what keeps me up at night. So. <laughs> when i have just sad answers i'm like oh my gosh melissa what are you doing with your life <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> so
0: it's funny that you say you wanted to be some kind of a doctor too because that's actually my dream job but i always when i was little even even a little bit during high school i really wanted to be i always thought it would be really cool to be an obstetrician i thought it would be great hmm. to be able to deliver babies i would just love that i would also be a midwife anything that gets me with like dealing with pregnant women and newborn babies, delivering them really interests me. I actually went through a period after I had my first son where I seriously considered just being like, let's go to medical school. Let's like try it, you know, and then I just, (laughs) I was just completely delusional about it and, you know, quickly realized I was not going to be able to pull that off while I was parenting a very young child. So I gave up on that dream
1: And here we are. I am not a doctor. Yeah. That's it. Not a doctor. I think that's the end of like Comedy Central shows. I can't even remember which one, but it ends with not a doctor. And that's basically what we both are.
0: (laughs) I do like the idea of helping people, but I just really think – I don't know. I think pregnancy and like baby, like newborns are like fascinating. Yeah, for
1: sure. I. So yeah. Yeah good for you good for you yeah so our last question is from Brianna B in our facebook group and she asked this is kind of in this is kind of to redeem ourselves from last week you guys heard us talk about the movies that we hate and we heard you and so now we are here to shame ourselves and maybe we don't hate harry potter but now we have shows or movies that we hate and you guys can make fun of us for so mandy what is your favorite bad movie I don't even know how to answer this. <laughs> oh, it's the one that you're going to find the most shame from. So, if you want, I can go first because I definitely. Have okay. One. <laughs> okay. So, this is not the movie. I don't really love the movie, but the soundtrack of A Walk to Remember is literally like my favorite thing in the entire world. But the movie that is like very not Melissa is Where the Heart Is. Do you remember that movie? I love that oh movie. Oh, my gosh. It's so <laughs> terrible, though. Like, if I was just, like, reading it on Wikipedia to, like, remind myself of the things. The woman's name is Nova Lee. She has a baby in a Walmart, and she names her baby Americus. <laughs> Stockard Channing's in this movie. Ashley Judd, Natalie Portman. There's a person in this movie named Sister Husband, and she... <laughs> She ends up getting married years later in a Walmart. Like, I I don't like romantic comedies. I don't like these romantic movies in general. But for some reason, Where the Heart Is is, like, my favorite movie. And I fought my husband early in my pregnancy with my daughter to name my child Americus. And I – it didn't work out. Americus is a great name. But I'm glad – I'm glad I didn't name her Americus for no other reason than, like, I don't watch that movie anymore. So it really wouldn't mean anything to me anymore. But, like – I would like to call somebody sister-husband as a, <laughs> as a <laughs> nickname because that is just awesome.
0: Yeah, I don't know. I don't really know, honestly. I like – you know, I don't even really watch a lot of TV or movies. I hate to keep saying that like week after week. Oh, but people,
1: are, just, people hear you and they're rolling their eyes. I'm doing it too. What about – I just don't. Do you like any of the Fast and the Furious movies? I'm trying to think of what – No. Like, what is okay, your so husband No, watch? I don't. Because then you might –
0: Well, okay. Okay. Well, that's the whole thing is that I don't like what I call man movies and these are movies that my husband likes and – they're man movies. I don't know. I feel like Fast and the Furious is a man movie. I'm not saying that women can't like it. You can like it if you want to, but I just categorize it's it as a man Probably more movie. targeted
1: towards <laughs> like, men. I think that's what
0: Yeah. So, but, or, and, and that goes to the same thing for like some action films too, where I'm just like, this is not, I'm not into this. You know, I don't
1: but know. Or is there just, one you like? Is there one that your husband puts on and you're like, oh, I don't mind this one? But no. Like, <laughs> oh my gosh. This is <laughs> fine. Fine, Mandy. Fine. You don't watch TV, and if you do, you don't like any of it that you watch. Fine. That's what we're getting <laughs> out of this. Well, but I feel like where the heart is is kind of a bad movie to like. And you just said you liked it. It is. Do you like where the I do. Uh, do you like um A Walk to Remember or I do love. I like that. I do love that movie. Well, then okay, there's your bad movie. That is a bad movie, Mandy. It is very dramatic. Apparently my dad watched it recently and loved it. I feel like any of those like drama
0: ones that came out around that time? Mm-hmm. Like, don't you remember movies that there was so many of them that were Nibla like Sparks. that? And they, all they were all Sparks just Sparks movies. Yes. <laughs> whoa, well, they were. If you have very to kiss somebody but... in
1: the rain or upside down in the rain. Thank you, Spider-Man. I'm just not that interested. Like that just seems like a choking hazard. It seems it doesn't seem romantic at all. It seems like you just get eaten up by mosquitoes. Maybe because we live in Florida. I just don't want anything to do with it. And I, I can't deal with any of the. Like what did he say? If you're a bird, I'm a bird. Come on, nobody's a bird here. What are we talking about? <laughs> this is so stupid. I love the Notebook. You think the Notebook is a bad hate movie it too? Hate. I oh hate my romantic gosh, romantic movie. I love
0: it. Well, they recently put the Notebook on Netflix, so I watched it again. Uh, rewatched. Did it hold it from, like, up? I don't even know. as
1: terrible as it was. What? It's so great. Maybe, I love it. I, and I-, <laughs> I hate to tell you, but these are really terrible movies that you like. <laughs> Like, you have an answer. You were very, like, hoity-toity and not having an answer, and now you do. These are terrible.
0: Well, I mean, two of them you said, so they I don't like really them. count yeah. that. But yeah, no, I do like the notebook. I admit that they're terrible,
1: though. You just apparently did not even – it did not even go on your radar that it could be terrible. Well, I figured if I liked it, it wasn't that terrible. Okay. Somebody has a high opinion of their own opinion. <laughs>
0: Oh, my goodness.
1: So we hope you guys enjoyed this week's episode. It was a little loosey-goosey there at the end. But the story is so great and inspiring. And please, please, please watch this documentary. And before we go, we are going to play the promo from our dear friend with Men's Rhea. And uh, she is in Ireland. I almost did an Irish accent. Thank goodness I didn't. We will let her tell you all about her podcast and hope you guys check it out. And we'll see you guys next week. All right. Bye, guys. Bye. Men's Rhea is the legal principle of criminal intent. It
0: means literally, the guilty mind. Join me, Sinead, every fortnight to discuss Ireland and the UK's most heinous crimes and the court cases that followed. Do you want to know more about a kink killing in Dublin in 2012? Or serial killers in Scotland? Whatever your guilty pleasure, you'll find it